This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Hello, I'm Phil McKinney, and welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where we are all about ideas, creativity, and innovation, and where we introduce you to top innovators who share with you their story. Now, today we have a special guest. Uh, this is a, a longtime friend of mine that has uh, been a leader in the field that uh, he has focused in on. Today's guest is Venu Bose. Venu has Venu and I met probably I don't know it's got to be fifteen years ago in a in a previous life uh, where we actually met through some business activities and then to become friends over the years. Uh, Venu has got his fingers in so many things. It's hard to keep track of what he's up to. So rather than me sitting here and you know pontificate on uh, the virtues of Venu, I'm gonna let, let's get him in here on the show. So Venu, hey, thanks for joining and thanks for taking this time out on Sunday. I appreciate you coming and joining the show. Hey Phil, it's great to talk to you again. It's it's been too long. Yeah, it's been too long. And and by the way, I love the uh, the tiger outfit for Halloween. <laughs> Yeah, I got I got good mileage out of that. Three years ago, my daughter decided out of the blue I was going to be a tiger for Halloween, and Amazon saved me, and I've been a tiger ever since. Well, that's the problem, right? When you uh, when you uh, become Facebook friends with me, and then you come on the radio show, you never know yeah, when I'm going to pop on you. <laughs> Didn't think about that. <laughs> <laughs> so. Actually, I'm trying to think back. You and I met, I guess, when you were first doing the uh, the commercialization work in, in a technology area called software-defined radio. So why don't you give give listeners a little bit of background on both yourself and your work and kind of that the, the, the give a little bit of history and context. Sure, sure. So um, the the work was the topic of my PhD thesis at MIT, and um, the principle at the time was very simple. Um, we, we said, can you move everything <clears throat> that makes one wireless system different from the other up into software and have generic hardware? And this was motivated by the fact that uh, every time a wireless carrier upgrades standards from 2G to 3G to 4G, uh, they have to spend billions of dollars putting out new equipment at all their cell sites before they can sell the first phone for the new standard. And, you know, we looked at that and said, well, that's kind of like requiring people to buy a new laptop every time you need to upgrade your version of Word. It's crazy. We need to decouple the hardware and the software. And in the, in the mid to late 90s, with the computing power, that was a very challenging task. Um, you know, we, we built, at the time, we had AMPS and, and TDMA, and we built an entire AMPS and TDMA base station on a... Um, I think it was a 60 megahertz 486, which was quite challenging. <laughs> but we proved it was possible. Uh, and then we decided to roll it into a company uh, when I graduated. And I, I think I'll give my credit, self-credit for one thing, which was realizing that the technology was not ready for prime time uh, when we started the company. And uh, there still needed to be a lot of R&D, not only by us, but in all the underlying technologies, processors, RFC modes, amplifiers, ADD converters. Um, so we spent the first six years doing R&D and, and mostly military government work. And it wasn't until six years later that we rolled out our first new commercial product in December of 2004 uh, as a, as a uh, cellular base station. And the premise of <laughs> was it time, wasn't that wasn't that mid tech cellular? Yeah, exactly. And I think we uh, that's where we that's where we 
Yeah, that's where we met because you built it. You built it on top of H. Server at the time. Right, you did it. You did it on top of HP gear, so we helped you on the at the mid on the midtech cellular deployment. So. That's right. That was our <laughs> wow. first commercial deployment. That's what got it all launched. And at, at the time, the um, the value proposition was our, our advantage was not only being able to upgrade from one standard to the other, but once you put it all up in software, you know, you can virtualize the platform and run multiple base stations on one. And there are about uh, 230 rural carriers in the U.S., like Midtech Cellular, very small ones most people have never heard of. And they have small subscriber bases, but all their revenue comes from roaming with the big guys, Verizon, AT&T, Sprint, and T-Mobile. So our proposition to them was you can run one base station that's both GSM and CDMA and roam with everybody, whereas in the past they were limited to roaming with half of them. So it effectively doubled their roaming revenue. So... The you talked about the fact that you you knew coming out when you took did the work on your PhD at MIT, then you spun it out into your company, and you knew that you had a long R and D path to get there. What were some of the biggest challenges? I mean, part of the challenge of any innovator is is you you may think you're ready, but it's all about at least my perspective. It's about getting the market timing right. But what were some of those yeah. challenges that you ran into in getting that commercialization? Right. Well, uh, I, I wish I could remember who told me this so I could give him credit, but it, it was some VC I was talking to who said that, he said, really good entrepreneurs are seldom wrong about what's next, but they're almost always wrong about when. And, uh, and I took that to heart. And, you know, basically, um, to really do a software radio, you have to digitize a wide swath of spectrum uh, right there. There were challenges. The you know um, the analog to digital converters didn't have enough dynamic range and bandwidth to do enough at the time. Uh, so we realized we had to focus in on narrower applications that the technology supported, and looking at the trends not only in analog uh, to digital converters but microprocessors for speed and power and RF CMOS. It was really about 10 years till they converged where it was really not only viable, but cost-effective. In fact, the biggest complaint about software radio when we started was, um, I remember presenting our first system at a conference when I was still a graduate student, and you know we could digitize the entire cellular band and do all this processing to pull out a single amps voice channel. And somebody stood up and said, congratulations, you've built the world's most expensive cellular uh, phone. <laughs> and you know I'd get up there and say, yeah, but Moore's Law, and nobody would buy it. And the two complaints were, look, to do it in software, the processors are more expensive and they're more power hungry. And those are two trade-offs that we can't afford in wireless. But thanks in part to two things. One, Moore's Law with the processors getting faster. But for a while, the faster actually hurt us because faster meant more power consumption. But then the advent of smartphones got people to focus on, hey, we need gigahertz processors that are actually low power consumption. So today, for example, we have a cellular base station, which I think we'll talk about a little later, for the rural developing market, where you need to run on solar. And it is today the lowest cost and lowest power consumption cellular base station, and it's a software radio. So the underlying technology to catch up to where we wanted to go was one of the main factors that we had to manage. And then in, in your case, um... You know, you talked, you hinted a little bit there about trying to convince people about Moore's Law. <laughs> What's, yeah. I mean, I don't know that, I've, that's been part of my frustration having been a CTO for so many years and now 
I jokingly get referred to as I'm the problem because now I'm a CEO uh, <laughs> about, you know, being the skeptic on the, on the new technology piece. So I don't know about you. Maybe when we come back, we're going to get ready to go to a break here in, a, in another minute or two. So we'll, 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 we're going to pause right here for a second. We'll pick it up when we come back. But one of the things I do want to hear more about is, is just some of those experiences in the commercialization piece, because I think the listeners of this show um, we all are running around. We got these great ideas. We're out there trying to raise money. We're trying to find that support, and we run into the what I refer to as the innovation antibodies. Yeah, you know those are the people who you know basically are just uh, the naysayers. Oh, it'll never work. Why would you do that? You just built the most expensive cell phone. You know all the all the all the the dumping on on the innovators who are out there trying to create new and. Uh, and great things. So when we come back. Yeah. I'm going to pick up. I want to pick right right where we left off there on that item, um, and then also I want to pick up and talk about your the work in the rural areas. I know you were just in Rwanda, and you and I've chatted about that. I've got a lot of activities going on there, so we can uh, compare notes. It's kind of strange we got to do this over a radio show, right? Even though we can <laughs> yeah, probably we pick up a phone call. Up, at least we get a chance. It's the, only time we, the only time we get to catch up because we both got to be we both got to be standing still for some. Uh, <laughs> Some period of time. So when we come back from the break, we got to pay a few bills here. When we come back from the break, uh, we'll pick up right where we left off with uh, Van Ubos talking about uh, his his innovation story and the work that he's doing. And we'll talk specifically about the impact that his work is having in rural America, but also in developing countries and bringing broadband to underserved populations, which is absolutely uh, critical for the development that needs to occur in, in, in these parts of the world. So... Listeners, uh, we're making available for free the two-hour Create uh, Killer Innovations. So it actually goes through and walks you through um, kind of a, a cheater version of what's in my book. Uh, we're giving that way for free. You can just text the word INNOVATE to 33444. If you're outside the U.S., you can just email the word INNOVATE at KillerInnovations.com. And again, when we come back, we'll pick up where we left off with Vanu Bowes and talk about... Uh, broadband services in rural markets and how his technology helps make that happen. You're listening to Kill Innovations. I'm Phil McKinney, and we'll be right back. Biz Talk Radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. I'm Phil McKinney, and welcome back to our second segment with Vanu Bose. If you're just joining us, Vanu is the founder and CEO of Vanu Incorporated. Uh, Vanu formed the company, taking his work on his PhD at MIT, turning it into what I consider one of the leading firms uh, out there in the software-defined radio space. So think about it as, as the taking uh, technology and virtualizing all that hardware and all the proprietary stuff into software to make it much easier to, to deploy. And uh, Vanu, let's pick up where we left off. There was two topics right at the end of the last segment that I wanted to hit on. 
One was your 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 experience with the innovation antibodies. You shared a little bit about uh, presenting while you were still a grad student and having people kind of poo-pooing your idea. And then we'll pick up and talk about the um, the use of your technology to bring broadband into the rural market. So let's start with the innovation antibodies. What's your what were some of the things you ran into trying to get people convinced that that's that you could virtualize uh, what was basically these big boxes that were very expensive in the past? Yeah, so actually, there's a great sequence because talking about those will tell you how we ended up at the uh, rural developing market. Uh, so, so in terms of the challenges of the antibodies, I would I would group them into two classes: the technical and the business. And let's talk about the technical first. Um, you know, when we started out, there were all these people who said, "Look, you can't do signal processing like this in software," and they had all the reasons because you had to go through a digital boundary and and the processors weren't real-time, et cetera. And then, as I said, the first thing we did was the analog amp cellular standard. And then people said, oh, you know, you can do analog signal processing software, but you can't do digital because you'll never get the symbol timing right, and that's really important, and there were other things. And then we did the TDMA and GSM standards, the two narrowband digital standards. And people said, well, okay, you can do narrowband digital standards, but you'll never be able to do wideband and especially spread spectrum standards like CDMA. You've got to do the chip rate processing and hardware. Then we did CDMA 2000, which was uh, a, you know, wideband chip rate processing, uh, which people thought there was no way you could do entirely in software. And then the question stopped because that CDMA technology is the same basis for what was in 3G, just do it a little wider, and 4G is actually easier from a processing perspective. But I think the, the lesson there is that you'll never convince people with PowerPoint. <laughs> you actually have to do it and demonstrate it, and that's, that's when minds change. Uh, there, there's a lot of entrenched mindsets on what can and can't be done, and I guess the lesson I've learned is stop trying to convince people, just do it and show them. <laughs> and that, that's the best way <laughs> well, to prove it. And I think that's actually a great point because, you know, I think a lot of innovators think that, you know, hey, I've got a patent. Isn't that enough? Um, and the answer is no. You know, the best <laughs> proof is actually doing it, not doing it in PowerPoint, but actually going out there, investing your own time, your own money, your own passion around the idea and just go out and just build it. Just prove yeah. that it works. Actually, uh, and, I remember uh, those, and I remember those discussions with you on that uh, – on some of that, on the early CDMA stuff. <laughs> right, exactly. And uh, actually, the point about patents is a good one. I got some really good advice from my dad when I started, because I was all concerned about the patents. And he said, look, you think when you start, your patents are the most valuable thing. Or, but the actually most valuable patents that you'll generate are the ones you generate in the process of trying to realize this idea. Because... The process of realizing it is actually much harder than people realize, and that's where the valuable IP is, and uh, and that is absolutely right <laughs> in our case. So you were talking about two classes of the antibodies. You talked about the technology, and then you mentioned business. What yeah. were some of the business antibodies? So, um, well, first I want to say we've been extremely fortunate that we had for many years on our board Clayton Christensen of Harvard Business School, who I know you're familiar with, Phil, and I imagine most of your listeners are too. And uh, today, our marketing strategy is an embodiment of his disruptive technology uh, philosophy. Uh, I will say, again, it was a lot harder to implement and, and execute on that strategy than it was putting it on the whiteboard to start with. Uh, so our mission today 
is to create solutions for people in places that lack wireless coverage. So you have to think about we're entering the wireless infrastructure business, which is actually pretty small in terms of the number of companies in there, but the companies are large. It's dominated by Ericsson, Huawei, and the two Chinese vendors, you know, all uh, multiple tens of billions in revenue. And uh, we are actually now the only small company that's broken through as a tier one vendor to a tier one carrier, which uh, for us is Vodafone in India. But getting there was a difficult path. And the key thing is, uh, Clay talks a lot about competing against non-consumption, which is go after a group of, of people or customers who can't use the technology either because it's too complicated or it's too expensive or, or, or for some reason they don't have the logistics to use it. And it took a while for us to figure out, well, what's non-consumption in wireless infrastructure? And finally we realized non-consumption is anywhere that you don't have good wireless coverage because every carrier would like to take out the magic marker and color in the entire map. The only reason they don't is current technology doesn't make it cost-effective for them to provide coverage in many locations, such as inside of buildings, in rural areas, in tunnels, on ships. So these are all the things that we focus on as a company. We don't try to build better uh, 4G systems for Manhattan. That, that's done really well by Ericsson and Huawei. And we try to fill in the gaps where their technology has not been able to give the car carriers a cost-effective solution. And um, one of the first things we looked at was originally in conjunction with Tata Teleservices in India, uh, in-building coverage. It, it's hard everywhere. It's really challenging in the developing market. So we created a, an innovative solution that actually used the public internet to securely backhaul cellular systems to, to eliminate costs and have deployed uh, several thousand of those in India. But as we did the market segmentation, um, it quickly became clear that of the uncovered areas, there was one area that dwarfed everything else, and that is the um, rural areas in developing markets. Now, that's not to say the rural areas in the U.S. aren't a problem, and we have, we have a solution there. We have a network running in Vermont. But the developing market has an additional challenge in that a typical high cell site takes about four kilowatts of power. There's a billion people in the world who don't have power and another 1.5 billion who don't have access to reliable power. And those 2.5 billion pretty much don't have good communications for that very reason. Um, so we... We looked at this problem and realized there's a, sort of a, a perverse inversion of the economic model um, in rural areas. So in rural areas, your revenue per cell site is lower. In the U.S., it's because we have such low population areas in rural, so you don't get as much revenue per cell site. And in uh, the developing markets, it's because the average revenue per user is so low. It, it's about a dollar in rural India and rural Africa, a dollar per month that people can spend on their cell phones. So how do you make, you know... Hey, Vanu, hey, Vanu, let's, let's hold yeah. up here just for a second. We're going to take a quick break because right. I want to really dig in on the Africa thing when, with, with, by working in Rwanda also. So stay right there. Yeah, cool. We'll be right back and pay a few bills. I'm Phil McKinney, and this is Kill Innovations. Talk Radio.
this is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Welcome back. I'm Phil McKinney. You're listening to Killer Innovations. We're going to pick up where we left off with Vanu right before the, the, the last commercial break. Vanu, you were talking about specifically the use of your technology in bringing rural broadband but specifically for the developing markets. And that's a market that I'm passionate about. I know you were just in Rwanda um, working with them on uh, their uh, their rollouts. So talk a little bit more about how your thoughts and the whole opportunity you think for bringing broadband to those developing markets. What does that look like? Yeah, so let me just summarize the challenge and then our solution. So as I said, the challenge is your revenue is lower. And then in the rural developing markets, the cost of running the network is actually higher because when you don't have electricity, they run the sites off of diesel. And diesel can cost you between two and $4,000 a month in rural areas of these countries. And that's, remember, your subscribers are only paying a dollar a month, so it's kind of hard to make up that difference. Um, so you really, we, we created a solution by combining both technology and business model evolution, and there's three aspects. Number one, is we created a wholesale network, meaning we build a network, but we don't have subscribers. Uh, this was from our learning of dealing with the folks like MidTech Cellular and all. There's so many of these small guys, but they struggle. They don't have economies of scale. They don't have enough volume to sell the iPhone. And we said, you know, world doesn't need another rural carrier that can't sell the iPhone. So as I mentioned, our first network was in Vermont. We build in areas in Vermont where none of the carriers have coverage. Nine carriers, then you run, use the network. We have Sprint, T-Mobile, Verizon, four Canadian carriers because we're on the border, U.S. Cellular, and a bunch of smaller carriers. So number one is wholesale network. Number two, and this is particularly the developing market, we had to get rid of diesel and the four kilowatt requirement for a, for a cell site. So. We've created uh, a cellular-based station. Uh, the GSM version of it consumes only 50 watts of power, like a dim light bulb. Uh, but it's not just the power consumption. A lot of the power at these sites goes into cooling the equipment, which we couldn't afford either. So it's an 11 by 12 by 4 inch base station, consumes 50 watts of power, and is rated to run up to 55 degrees C, which is about 132 degrees Fahrenheit. And again, going back to innovation, People just didn't believe you could run a network completely off solar and, and and with those temperature requirements. So we did a trial for a full year on two sites in Zambia, and it ran for a full year on solar and battery and made it through the Zambian summer. Uh, so once it makes that, everybody agrees that it can handle the temperature. But then there was a third innovation needed to get the overall cost of running the network down. And... Um, this really was motivated by one of our board members who's, a, uh, I know, a good friend of yours too, Phil, uh, Barry West, the former CTO of Sprint Nextel. And uh, Barry said to me one day, he said, you know, I've built a lot of rural sites at Sprint and Nextel, and the traditional thinking is in a low-population area, you want to build the tallest, highest power site you can to cover the most area. Barry looks at me and says, but mostly you just cover more rocks and trees, and they don't generate enough revenue. So we said, what would it look like if you had a network where people live, work, and commute? Uh, if you have coverage in those three aspects of your life, you'll be pretty happy. What it turns out, and this is true, we've looked at Vermont, Alaska, North Carolina, Nepal, Zambia, and now Rwanda. Um, almost 
all of the homes and businesses are within half a mile of some road. Not a highway, but a secondary or tertiary road. So suddenly we realize, hey, if we cover those roads in half a mile on either side, we get all the places people live, work, and commute. So this allowed us to do something that, that most of the industry still thinks is radical, which is we can cover rural areas with small cells. For traditional carriers, small cells are for in-building and urban infill, not for rural coverage. So we have 110 sites up in Vermont covering rural areas, you know, roads and half a mile to a mile on either side of the road. And um, what we really wanted to do was address those 2.5 billion people uh, in the developing market without coverage. And um, we, so we were looking around for a, a place to pilot this, this whole concept. And uh, we're working with our partners at Facebook, who have been great supporters. And um, they said to me right away, they said, if you want to pilot somewhere in Africa, go to Rwanda, because things work in Rwanda. And it, you know, if the last thing you know about Rwanda is Hotel Rwanda, you need to take another look. It is one of the most impressive countries in Africa. Uh, things work really well. The government streamlined and really focused on, on helping the people. So we've, we've gone out and surveyed the rural areas, and we're going to build a wholesale 2G, 4G network in rural Rwanda running off solar power. Uh, I want to make one point, though, because I know you've mentioned broadband, and that's what everyone talks about. Um, 2G is extremely important to start in these areas because the, people, the, the one device people have is a 2G flip phone, uh, even if they don't have coverage. Uh, if they get to somewhere where they can make a call once a week, it's incredibly useful for them. Because remember, they don't have phones at home. And the reason they're 2G flip phones is they don't have power, so they can't be charging. You know, I charge my iPhone all the time. Uh, they can't do that. So that's the device they have, and that's their on-ramp to communications. And um, and so well, we support 2G. We're building out 4G. And... To me, it's still a little bit of an open question of what's the right transition, how do you get people on the 4G, what are the right, um, what are the right devices. And that's one thing I love about partnering with Facebook is what they're interested in doing experiments to figure this out. So rural Rwanda is going to be uh, a big experiment. We're going to roll out different programs, different kinds of devices, and work with the carriers to see what, how do you actually get traction. And then the plan would be to show that we can properly provide coverage for rural and roll it out across the rest of rural Africa. Well, it's interesting because I've been in Rwanda now since 2008. We have a for-profit investments. So we run, uh, we do for-profit as an economic development. We don't do it as a charity. But we're out in the Bugisera area. So we're about an hour and 20 minutes out of Kigali. Oh. Um, and we have, we have, and we have a, a four-bedroom guest house out there, right there at the- Well, let's be the, there uh, next time and sit on the radio. Yeah, yeah. That's gonna say. Actually, my wife and I we we typically go for the entire month of December. We're in Rwanda for the entire month, um, and we're actually now in the process of building a school there, um, as a, as working with the Rwandan government as a model to change education, to teach innovation and creativity, as part of a core curriculum. But I can tell you, when I'm there and I drop in my MTN sim, right? So I've got a two five zero number when I'm in country. I have to like hang over the fence and I might get two bars, you know, but, but, but if I'm in Kigali, I've got three, I've got two G three G in, in right. Kigali. But when you're an hour well, out well, and you're so in, send, send me your address, I'll make sure we get you covered. Thank you, man. That would, that, 
And you're right, though. Everybody out there has got the phone. In fact, we have about 100, 125 employees that work out at the it's a fish farm in, in Bugacera. Oh, cool. And we actually got them all on mobile bill on mobile uh, banking now. And they out there, they don't have a concept of banking. Right. So we've trained all the employees on how to – so everything – the thing I everything happens on that mobile phone, man. I'm telling you, they don't. That that mobile phone is everything for them. Yep. Well, the the thing that I find so interesting is that one of the reasons there were so many unbanked is they don't have identity cards or even addresses in many cases, and the mobile phone has become their identity, and and that's <laughs> that's what enables you to access these services. And uh, yeah, the the level is one of the most amazing things. We surveyed a bunch of villages in rural Nigeria initially. And you would drive for two hours outside of coverage, right? For two hours with no coverage. You get to the village, the first thing everyone does is take out their phone and take a picture. I mean, they're, they're two hours from the nearest coverage, but they all have phones. Yeah, exactly. It's, it is, uh, it, it, it's a whole different perspective. In fact, I love when, we, when my wife and I are in, are in Rwanda doing our work there with our investments and that because it gives you a whole different perspective. You know, it's not about what we normally know, we've got to get outside of our comfort zone. Say, hey, Vanu, for those people who want to follow what you're doing, what's the best way for them to uh, track what you're up to? Well, we're, we're on Facebook, Vanu Inc., V-A-N-U-I-N-C, and Twitter, and uh, our homepage, www.vanu.com, is uh, about to get a major facelift. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does look a little dated, but I wasn't going to yeah, rag on you on that one. We're so busy, we kind of neglected it, so... Uh, Check back in a few weeks. It'll be it'll be a lot better. But the most yeah, uh, and, and, the most up to date information is on Facebook, including uh, I was privileged to have a meeting with President Kagame last time in Rwanda, who is fully behind this effort. So we have yeah. In fact, I saw your picture with with President Kagame, and um, that's that's actually great. And we actually should team up because I think there's a lot absolutely that uh, there's so much that we all could be doing in these developing countries to bring technology and innovations that could really be transformative to people's lives and. As we say about this show, we're about we're about uh, changing the world. So, Vanu, thanks a lot. Listeners, stay tuned. We're going to be right back after this commercial break. We're going to have a killer question that is just going to flip you out. So stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. I'm Phil McKinney, and this is Killer Innovations. Talk Radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation so are you ready you ready for this week's killer question now normally in the killer questions we talk about product we talked about customers your 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 target market segments this week though we're going to take a little bit of a different twist on the killer question talk about where do you actually do your r&d so this week's killer question is is where do you perform product research and development where else and where else could this be done now I'm speaking here from my own personal experience of having been CTO at HP and in my uh, current role. And this is an important question, particularly if you have a leadership role within your organization. So 
the key here is is what is your organization's philosophy about design and development? You know, do you do you have a philosophy that says keep everything in house, or do you outsource as needed? Now, there's two schools of thoughts on this. By keeping it in house, you can build a sense of continuity and cohesion. It links the entire product family or services you're creating. You know, keeps them all together. Or you can outsource as needed. You're hiring the talent for specific products, and then you move on once it's completed. Now, neither is right or wrong. The more important point is to have a rationale for whichever strategy you choose and to extract the most value from it. So look at a company like Herman Miller, the office furniture company. The Aeron chair is an iconic design. Uh, every startup has Aeron chairs or had Aeron chairs. But it's, designed, but it's not designed internally. Instead, Herman Miller outsourced the design to leading designers that have their own firms. And the famous husband and wife team, uh, Charles and Ray Eames, designed the classic 1950 Eames chair the same way for Herman Miller. The point is, is that Herman Miller knows what their strengths are, which is manufacturing and distributing the final product. They also have a huge amount of practical expertise. For instance, they have experts in ergonomics, you know, less obvious details that are critical to the overall comfort and practicality of a product. Um, they share this very specialized knowledge with the designers and then throw the company's expertise into selling the final piece of furniture. Herman Miller has, been, has a very different idea of where design, research, and development should take place. And Herman Miller has adopted the philosophy that it's more important to ensure the product and the, and the brightest are working on the product and that your highest priority then is making sure that the work is done in-house. So it's not about doing it in-house. It's really about getting the best and the brightest working on it and then using your expertise. In the past, I've led projects that were going to be, you know, make it specifically for a specific country. So why would you design in the U.S., right? So if you're going to do something for India, do R&D engineers in Cupertino, California know what people in India need? So if you're going to design it for a specific market, then you need to throw out the rules about how it's done in the past and do the R&D closer to the customer. So in our case, we would actually send the team to that country. And in one case, we interviewed 2,600 countries and drove the R&D from there, not from the U.S. Now, sometimes you have to put your resources in the right place to get the right results. You need to be aware of the fact that your team will have gaps in their life experience, their beliefs, and their focus. This may not matter in 99% of the projects you assign them, but there will be times when these gaps are a problem. Consider the possibility that you need to look outside your walls to find the right brains for the specific task. You're not going to have 100% of the resources you need inside your organization. It's just, it's just too costly to keep these highly specialized people on the bench until you need them. If you're an employee in one of these specialized departments, you need to be aware of how this shift is going to change your value to your organization. If you believe there's a coming transition to the creative economy, then your future worth and career is dependent on your ability to come up with ideas for a number of companies rather than just one. And as soon as you go dry of those ideas, you're out of luck. But actually, you're in luck because you're listening to this podcast. Another element of this killer question is that you need to consider is the concept of open innovation, which has been a hot topic for the last few years. Open innovation is the approach where organizations go outside to secure a funnel of ideas. One example is companies who partner with state universities to leverage government-funded research or companies who sponsor promising high school students in the hopes that they will join their workforce after graduation. The U.S. government is actually even using programs like Top Coder to create open-sourced idea channels. And companies like Procter & Gamble post tough engineering problems on dedicated websites and offer prizes for the first person to come up with a solution. 
So how does this affect you and your business? No matter what size your organization is, you have to recognize the importance of embracing the open innovation concept as you source your ideas. One of the challenges with innovation today is that many people believe that high-impact innovation comes from large companies, and that's not the case. Small Business Administration reports that while small firms are granted only 8% of all patents, they receive 24% of all patents issued in the top 100 emerging technologies. So the source for ideas in the new and emerging area is strongly influenced by startups. And patents issued to small businesses are not broad and generic. They're very focused. And so this means that large companies are looking for sources of innovation outside their four walls. And they realize they need to do their part with others are doing either by partnering with innovative startups, acquiring them, or investing in them. Procter & Gamble has stated that they have a target of 50% of their innovations need to come from outside the company, which forces their people to seek out others who are doing interesting stuff, not just relying on what's happening in their own labs. So innovation used to be all about confidentiality, funding your own research and development. The future is different. This shift from the knowledge economy to the creative economy requires that organizations think differently about their funnel. These fundamental values in the new economy is ideas, and ideas can come from anywhere and anyone. You don't need machinery or a lot of capital to have ideas. The creative economy relies on the individual ability to come up with interesting and compelling ideas. So the sparking questions for this week is, are you doing your R&D 100% internally or externally, and do you really understand why you do it this way? How confident are you that you have the best possible R&D teams working on your projects? And what would be the result if you radically changed your approach to research and development? So get your notebook out, 10 minutes a day. That's not much time, but it can have a huge impact on you and your career. And think about this in the context of your own career as an innovator. So go ahead, get out there, and start working. Stay up to date on everything going on here at the Killer Innovations uh, site. Go out to the site, check it out. Also, you can text the word INNOVATE to 33444. If you're outside the U.S., you can send an email to innovate at killerinnovations.com. Don't forget, check out the site. That's where the show notes are. Also, check out BizTalk Radio Network. Uh, visit biztalkradio.com. You can grab the mobile app. Also, drop me a note at phil at killerinnovations.com if you have any ideas for potential guests for the show. We greatly appreciate all of that support and help. This week's show is being engineered by Jeremiah. He's new to the team, and I want to welcome him on to the team here to help us with putting this show together. That support is critical to uh, delivering you great content. So stay tuned. I'll be back next week. I'm Phil McKinney. Don't let the innovation critics get you down. Keep on innovating, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. The opinions you hear on BizTalk Radio are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect those of this station, BizTalk Radio, its management, or advertisers. The information on BizTalk Radio does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or service. If you have any questions about BizTalk Radio, contact us at 817-274-1609 or at biztalkradio.com. BizTalk Radio. 